Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 24 of Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And today we're throwing it way, way, way back. We're going all the way back to, is it the Silver Age of Hollywood? Sure. Platinum Age? I mean, yeah, I didn't know if it was Golden Age. I don't know. I'm thinking of comic books, so I'm probably going to say this wrong. (laughs) It'd be like the Golden Age of comic books, but the, the... Classic times of Hollywood. <laughs> We're going back to 1936. There okay. You go. <laughs> We're going to 1936. And tonight we watched Dracula's Daughter, which um, this is an instance where I had never seen the movie and Juliet had. Yeah. Like I've a bunch it. of times, right? Oh, yeah. 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 You know, it's universal. So I've seen it many a times. You know, more times just in pieces, like just having it on. Um, But certainly I've sat down and watched it quite a few times. It's a classic. So this was 1936. It was five years after the Bela Lugosi Dracula. Mm -hmm. And it is meant to be immediately after Bela Lugosi's Dracula. Basically, Count Dracula is dead and chaos ensues. Correct. (laughs) I feel like that's a good summary. Yeah. We follow Dr. Jeffrey Garth, who is a psychiatrist slash physician who just randomly is in London. (laughs) He's trying to go on a shooting trip, I guess, like a hunting. Yeah, poor guy just wants to go on vacation, I think. He's like, look, I'm overworked. I need to go (laughs) and convalesce up in the, the Scottish Highlands and shoot some pheasant. And then immediately his secretary, Janet Blake, is like, oh, wait. How long have you been here? Three minutes? I will interrupt you immediately. Yes. And she does and draws him back into a case because Dr. Von Helsing, who has been detained in the murder of Count Dracula, is trying to tell everybody that there are vampires and nobody believes him. So he's like, listen, go find my friend, Dr. Garth. He is going to vouch for me. We'll figure this out. Yep. So the whole story is kind of couched in Dr. Von Helsing's, I guess... I mean, he's kind of, he's kind of in jail. Yeah. I guess his, like, what is that called? He's detained. Yes. He's on house arrest. Yeah. His detainment. Yeah. Because he's like, listen, there are vampires. And everybody's like, okay, yeah, vampires, whatever. And then he tries to tell Dr. Garth. Garth's like, no, dude, I know that you're under a lot of stress. I know that you've had some crazy stuff happen, but you can't pull this card on me. But then we get the mysterious and beautiful Countess Zaleska, who starts putting the moves on both literally and figuratively, <laughs> um, put on people. And uh, then Dr. Garth can't deny anymore what's happening. It's good. It's a classic. And it's much different, although it's supposed to be the tail end of 1931's Dracula, which is definitely a classic. And mm-hmm. Bella Lugosi's portrayal of Dracula is like, you just simply can't forget it. Yeah. And uh, anytime you see, like, any sort of caricature of Dracula, it's always that Dracula. It's always Bela Lugosi's Dracula. But this movie, I think, is much different in tone. It still has a lot of the same 
music and um, being a universal film, it uses a lot of the same camera motion and things like that. But I feel like tone wise, this is much different. What do you think? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And even in terms of universal sequels, the tone is a little different. I mean, the Frankenstein franchise would follow later with sort of the search for a cure for the monster or the brain transplant that we see later on in the franchise to um, help sort of elevate the monster's intelligence and reasoning. But this is sort of the first of the Universal sequels that we see. And there weren't many at this point, I should add. Bride of Frankenstein had come out two years prior. But this is sort of the first time in Universal that we see a reluctant protagonist. We see a lot of psychology involved in it, which would come into play in some of the other Universal Monster franchise films that would follow this. The tone is very interesting. It's sort of predicated on this whole, like, is the thing really a thing or is somebody just crazy? Mm-hmm. Which horror will conti- would continue and will continue to explore until the end of time. Mm-hmm. Having a woman as a protagonist slash antihero it was very revolutionary because Bride of Frankenstein came out two years prior. And although she is who the film is named for, she's only in like the last five minutes of the movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for as much build up as modern merchandising would like us to believe, like the bride is born, she screams and rejects her sort of betrothed lover, mm-hmm. and he kills her. Mm-hmm. And that's the end. And we could go into a whole thing that we will, at some point when we actually cover Bride of Frankenstein, about the sort of romantic positioning of the monster and the bride and how that's completely inaccurate to the story. But she sort of only exists as a device mm-hmm. to him in that movie. And she's in very, very little of it. Whereas Dracula's daughter, like... The Countess is our leading lady, Mm -hmm. and she's fabulous. (laughs) Yeah, she's definitely a very commanding presence on screen, both because of her makeup and just her facial structure. There is something about the way they used to do makeup during that time period in Hollywood, both like by way of filmmaking being sort of a newer Mm -hmm. um, format and also coming from that old stagecraft situation where you're like more is better right (laughs) always more so that people in the way way back can see you right there's a lot of um standing and posing that happens you know at the top of a staircase or like on a landing and she's just like there looking really cool she's got a really neat gown on that's just how it has pockets it has pockets (laughs) several of her gowns have pockets and i feel jealous like i want yeah them. <laughs> yeah especially like her like artist smock that has pockets when she goes to her studio i'm like yeah that's where it's at mm-hmm. it's like a shirt dress slash smock thing but it's gathered in the back so you still have kind of like a shape in the back but it still has pockets yeah it's great yeah i feel like somebody should make that oh yeah that would be cool yeah I'd buy that. The Zaleska line. Oh, yeah. I'd I'd buy all of her clothes. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely, I don't uh, shop for clothes that often, but if that that came around, it would be, that would for sure be something that I would want to peruse because they're awesome. Dear Foxblood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like any of the uh, goth, like, slash counterculture companies, like, please do this. Yeah. But yeah, this movie, like what you were saying about the unwilling protagonist, I found that extremely interesting because Dracula, uh, the 31 Dracula, you don't 
ever get a sense that this Dracula is unwilling or mm-hmm. wants to undo, you know, his path in life. He he definitely wants this. He's not apologetic. Like he kills his victims and he feels no remorse. This is him. He's an animal at certain points in time. He wants this. He wants to be able to manipulate people. He wants to be able to drink their blood. But Dracula's daughter, Countess Aleska, does not want this. She was an unwilling participant. She was turned by Dracula, becoming his quote-unquote daughter. And she no longer wants this. She wants to be released from this. She she hates being out only at night. She hates having to kill in order to sustain herself. She no longer wants to do this. So that's kind of how she... Uh, gets close to Dr. Garth, she thinks that using his powers of psychiatry, he can release her from this terrible plight in life. Very interesting. And quite revolutionary in cinema. Now, in literature, there were a few vampire characters who were reluctant, but Countess Seleska is the first cinematic vampire that we see who is reluctant to be a vampire. And you know, she would go on to influence all kinds of vampire cinema and television. Notably, Anne Rice watched this movie as a child and took a lot of influence for it when writing Interview with a Vampire, saying that she was intrigued by and wanted to further explore that sort of reluctant immortality. And I think that's really, really cool. It is a definite different dimension than we see in Dracula. Like, Dracula has so much swagger and is like, he is all about being a vampire. Like, he's into it, you know? He is interested in using his powers to feed on the most beautiful creatures, the most beautiful people to amass power and to bring people in to be, you know, his brides. Zaleska is very much the opposite. She resents her power. She doesn't want her power. She's reluctant to feed on people. She's fighting the urge to do so, which is all a giant metaphor if you ask most people that we can uh, either dive into right now or get to. Now let's let's dive in. Let's get to the crunchy bits. Yeah, let's get to the crunchy bits. So everyone, even the studio, like when they were making this in their advertising and things like that. So you can't even say it's like modern people putting, you know, a sort of modern spin on it. Everyone points to this movie as being, as vampirism being a metaphor for queerness. Mm -hmm. Like, period, straight up. There's been a lot of really great writing on it. I'll mention several different articles and blogs throughout, and we'll link all those in the show notes. You know, number one, when you look at the advertisements for this film, the original advertisements, they were saying things like, you know, hide the women of London from Dracula's daughter. She makes you feel strange things. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, they knew what was up. Now, they had to be very, very careful because of the Hayes Code. And they actually censored, added some layers of censorship to a couple of things just to get it to pass the Hayes Code. Several studio executives were like very nervous about putting out this movie because they knew. They mm-hmm. knew it was like super queer at a time when you could not... <laughs> be overtly queer in cinema. Mm-hmm. It's just fascinating to me, the whole exploration of wanting so badly to be something you're not because mm-hmm. you're scared of what you are and wanting to hide but being unable to resist who you are. Like, it's um, it's a beautiful, sad, really interesting story. And it's really telling for the time in which it was made. 
Yeah, Countess Aleska often, when you see her expressing herself to Dr. Garth, is very sad, almost to the point of desperation. She has her faithful assistant, Sander, but he is more like a like a Renfield type. Yeah. He's not insane like Renfield, but he's still kind of like the devoted familiar mm-hmm. um, who is like working in her service so that he can eventually attain immortality as well. But when she expresses herself to Dr. Garth, she has this like profound sadness at the fact that she feels compelled from beyond the grave and that she can't stop herself. Mm-hmm. Although she desperately wants to. She desperately wants to stop, but she she just absolutely can't. And she tells him that, and he's like, the power is inside yourself, which I thought that was kind of funny. It reminded me of the whole discussion of, like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah, definitely. You know? He's like, the power is inside yourself. All you have to do is confront it and then push past it. And I was like, yeah, there's a reason why we don't treat. He was mentioning treatment of alcoholism mm-hmm. uh, sitting somebody in a room by themselves with a bottle of booze and just forcing yourself not to drink it and i was like there's a reason why we don't treat people with alcoholism in that way anymore exactly <laughs> because yeah. that's not how it goes exactly and yeah it is a very clear metaphor for queerness as well it's like well if you're queer and you don't want to be then just present yourself with that and just don't just don't do it yeah that's it And it's like, yeah, that's not, (laughs) that doesn't work either. Countess Aleska did not achieve what she wanted. And that's not how you, uh, you handle different parts of your personality just by saying no. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. And we see her struggle with that throughout, you know, when he tells her like, you know, confront your fears, you know, or confront the thing that you're worried about. And just meet it head on. Well, what does she do? She brings a young woman in under the guise of painting her and then can't resist drinking from her. Immediately. Immediately. But, like, she doesn't even get to pose and then Countess Aleska doesn't even get to paint her. Yeah. Like, she immediately is like, yeah, drink the wine. Eat those finger sandwiches. Okay, now, all right, yeah, all right. Yeah. I, can't, stand, I can't stand by this fire. Yeah. Oh, you look really nice in that light and scene. Yeah, exactly. But she is careful not to kill her. Right. Which I think is an important distinction because there are several dead in her wake yes. prior to Lily, the young woman that she brings in to paint. There are several dead people. She kills the police officer mm-hmm. at the beginning. I think that Dr. Von Helsing mentions, or either Dr. Von Helsing or potentially Dr. Garth, mention another dead person that had been found drained of blood, but she does not kill Lily. And I believe that all of the people that were killed were men, mm-hmm. and she spares a woman, which I think is interesting. Definitely. And she also later spares Janet Blake. Yeah. Although the reasons for that are kind of muddied because obviously she wanted to keep Dr. Garth on a string because she says, I want to make him immortal. But it's like, do you really? It doesn't seem like there's much there mm-hmm. between the two of you. It seems like there's much less there between the two of them than there was in other relationships that she had with women. Yeah, and it really seems like, you know, a lot of people will try to code it as, oh, well, she fell in love with Dr. Gareth. I don't think so. I think it's a codependency thing. It's like, oh... Well, you can fix me. And if I just keep you around a little longer, 
you'll fix me. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think it was a love thing at all or a romantic thing or a sexual thing for that matter. I think it was a total dependency on I'm broken and this is the person that can fix me. So I need to spend as much time with them as possible. Or if they can't fix me, then I will doom them into being the Mm -hmm. same thing as me. Broken like me. Yeah, broken like me. Because Dracula didn't want to keep, it didn't seem like he kept Countess Aleska under his thumb. Right. He created her and then kind of released her and just let her do her own thing. Which is another thing that to me points to the queerness of it all. Mm -hmm. She's not a bride. Yeah. She's a daughter. Right. And Dracula clearly has several brides. Yeah. Which he keeps with him. Yep. Or he did keep with him. But yeah, she's progeny. Mm -hmm. She's not a partner. Right. Which is interesting. Like, for what reason would Dracula do it aside from just, like, his own, you know, hubris to be like, well, I can do it, so why not do it? Or perhaps he thought she was so beautiful that he could not bear to let her die as he had changed, like, Lucy and wanted to change Mina and all that. Super interesting, though, portrayal of that push and pull between love in terms of, like, a friendship relationship and, like, the direness of passion Mm -hmm. and the distinction between, like, sexual passion and obsession passion. Yeah. Because they're towing the line there quite a bit. It's an interesting push and pull, like, get and give between Countess Aleska and Dr. Garth and I think Janet Blake towards the end as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I don't know if you thought that Dr. Garth and um, Janet Blake ended up having like feelings for one another. Oh, yeah, definitely. It kind of seems like one of those, uh, I'm going to flirt with you and also like make fun of you mm-hmm. because I like you. Definitely. Because she like quits and then she's like, no, I came back. Then I think Countess Aleska like can smell that between the two of them. Totally. Figuratively. And she is like, well, I'm going to insert myself here because I don't like this. Yeah. That's an interesting love triangle right there. Definitely. Yeah. She's probably hyper aware of the dynamics between people because she has had to sort of be hyper aware of her dynamics with people. You know, Mm -hmm. the queerness, the vampirism, all of it. You know, she has to be, in order for her to survive... And she says at the beginning, she has that beautifully sad speech about mm-hmm. when she thinks that she's broken Dracula's curse on her. She's like, oh, I can be normal again. I can think normally, which was the most interesting line. You know, music will sound normal to me. I can dance. I can be around in the daytime. So obviously she's been hyper aware of the seeming air quotes abnormality of her relationships with other people, the way she moves in the world. So she's probably highly observant of what she perceives to be normal relationships. <laughs> because, you know, if you're perceiving that you have a lack of something, you're going to be paying attention to that thing that you lack or the way your air quotes supposed to be acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially as somebody who is also a vampire. Yeah. You have to be extra super careful to make sure right, that you're presenting right. yourself, checking all the boxes, mm-hmm. which is especially funny because she dresses to the nines all the time. All the time. So she's standing out already. But dresses to the nines very differently than everyone else, which I really like. I like that about her character in general. 
And in general, she dresses very different than women we see in Universal movies. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of glam in these movies of this time, but we see glam more akin to what Janet is wearing, mm-hmm. like your sort of classic Hollywood looks of the 1930s, you know, beautiful dresses, a lot of jewels, feather boas, light colors, taffeta, etc. The Countess is always wearing black or gray in some cases. Mm-hmm. Always very streamlined. Um, I think of like German influence, mm-hmm. um, both like expressionist German fashion as well as like German fashion of like the 80s, mm-hmm. like when it kind of came back around. Like all black, slimline, still extremely chic and glamorous. Beautiful jewelry, though very subtle and subtly placed, interesting shapes and lines in her clothing. But a stark contrast to what Hollywood women, you know, American Hollywood starlets would be wearing in these films, even though most of them take place in Europe. I definitely see a lot of inspiration in uh, Morticia uh, Mm -hmm. from Countess Aleska in this movie. The very kind of subtle makeup, even though I said that it's like pretty extra, that's more in terms of like layering and also to make somebody look very like pale and their face shape accentuated on screen especially when you're looking at a, you know, a black and white film. She also has her eyeshadow is fairly dark. Mm -hmm. She has a lot of mascara on. Her lipstick is pretty understated, as where Janet Blake's lipstick is very dark against her skin. She has kind of like the pouty heart-shaped mouth where Countess Aleska has like a very dramatic look, I think, overall. Her eyebrows are very dark, too. So definitely a lot of Morticia inspiration there. Same with the dress, like very, very um, clingy, I would say. Not sheer and gauzy, though, like clingy and dark and solid. And when she first enters the movie, we have this scene where um, you have a cop that's kind of like protecting the body of Count Dracula and... She comes in and says that she wants to see the body. She wants proof that Dracula is actually finally dead. Because obviously to all of these other mortals, they're like, oh, yeah, sure, he's dead. And she's like, wait, is he really dead, though? (laughs) It almost is like she floats into the room. Yeah. And she wears this, like, very dramatic black cloak. It covers the bottom part of her face. And she almost floats into the room. We see when she enters the cell that dracula's bodies and we actually see that she's not floating but they definitely made a, a made it a point to almost make her float in. oh yeah very dramatic so it was really cool i definitely want a cloak like that oh yeah it would be warm in the winter it seems like oh yeah <laughs> cloaks and capes in general need to make a comeback agreed <laughs> at the very very beginning of this movie you have two scotland yard police officers come and find Dr. Dr. Von Helsing. I keep almost saying Van Helsing because it's Van Helsing. Yeah. But in these movies, it's always Von Helsing. Right. I really think they lay on the German quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But Von Helsing um, is there, you know, between two dead bodies and the cops are just like, well, I never. (laughs) (laughs) They're kind of like the OG bumbling cops of Mm -hmm. horror movies. And it just made me laugh because I'm like, this is a trope that will never die. I know. There will always be mumbling cops. Always. And it's really just one of them that's kind of bumbling. He keeps going like, ooh, like when something (laughs) scary happens, he's just like, ooh, what? And he's the one who ends up getting killed by Countess Aleska. But it was pretty hysterical either way. 
that's a trope that's never gonna die then now across you know across the atlantic ocean whatever it's always gonna be a thing yeah did you think that janet blake was hilarious because i thought she was hysterical she's ridiculous yeah she's like such a good comedic foil to all of dr jeffrey's like very serious dourness yeah especially after dr von helsing's like yeah no there's definitely vampires and after that it just seems like dr jeffrey's just so annoyed with everything uh, oh yeah all the time he's utterly done and janet blake is such a good funny lighthearted foil against him because she doesn't take anything seriously she is his secretary but she's also a baroness so apparently she just does whatever she wants yeah it seems like she also has a separate source of income that has nothing to do with dr jeffrey Given that she's a baroness, she's probably one of those people that, like, doesn't have to work, but is just like, eh, I'm going to work to entertain myself. I'm going to be the psychologist assistant. Sure. That'll be fun. Whatever. I have nothing else to do. Yeah. Not only that, like, I will work and do these things, but also I'm going to do whatever else I want. And I will only work when I feel like it. Exactly. I just thought it was funny. She literally flew to Edinburgh and then drove all the way down to the hunting club that Dr. Jeffrey was at so that she could pick him up and say, all right, now I got to go back to London so you can go to Scotland Yard. And he was like, I just like he gives the gun back and he's like, here, keep that for next season. Plus, I can't trust myself with it. He's constantly like they're just constantly back and forth with one another. And I just think it's hilarious. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's super annoyed by her at all times. She's a great contrast to the Countess, too. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, to Janet, everything is just kind of a big joke and Mm -hmm. life is fun. And, you know, the Countess, no, you know, she's there it's good too that they're both kind of nobility mm-hmm. because it's not that oh janet is like a silly little shop girl and you've got this countess and whatever no janet and the countess operate within the same worlds mm-hmm. and one of them is just not having a good time and the other one is determined to have a good time <laughs> yeah that's a good point janet is absolutely determined to have a good time and also dr jeffrey can't uh, he can't fire her because he cannot tie his tie on his own so who would be there to tie his tie if uh if you fired janet i (laughs) okay like why are men wearing ties if they can't tie them because uh they need to look really fancy julia yeah i mean it's just i don't know (laughs) as somebody who's never understood ties in general because like it's a piece of fabric i don't it serves literally no purpose i don't understand the whole like I've got to wear a tie, but I'm also going to refuse to learn how to tie it. (laughs) That's a good point. Like, it's not that he, you know, couldn't tie it. It's that he won't be tying it. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Like, this is a smart person. He's a psychologist. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely has the capability of doing it. He just will not be doing it. Yeah. Plus, he likes likes how close other people have to get to his mouth. (laughs) He likes to lick them. Uh, No, no. I just... (laughs) That's uh, apocryphal. I don't really know that. Well, the one nurse, he tries to get her to help him, and she's just kind of like, uh-uh. She uh -uh." just starts sweating a lot. Yeah. (laughs) She's like, oh, I'm trying. She's trying really hard, and then afterwards, when Janet ends up actually tying for him, the nurse is, like, mopping her brow. Because she's, like, so 
like verklempt at this. She's like, <laughs> oh boy. I don't know if she's like sensing the vibes between the two of them. Maybe. Or she's just really embarrassed that she couldn't do that. But also she's a nurse. Like, Yeah, is, when has she ever had to wear a tie? Right? Is this a requirement for like nurses in the 1930s now for them to wear a tie? <laughs> or for them to be able to tie other people's ties? Because it is very different to, like, tie someone's tie versus tying your own tie. Exactly. Yeah, bow ties are weird. Just get a clip-on, man. Yeah. Just get a good one good clip-on, and that's... Yeah, you're done. You're set. Yeah. Nobody needs to know. Mm-hmm. Nope. And then you never have to tie it. Yeah. And it would never be too tight either, because it's a clip-on. Yeah. Just nobody wear ties anymore. Let's yeah. just all make a pact. Ties are stupid. Let's not do them. Or like ties are optional and you're only allowed to wear one if you know how to tie it yourself. Okay. Regardless of gender. That's fair. Like if you're going to take on wearing a tie, you need to know how to operate the tie. Yeah. And if you don't want to operate a tie, then just don't wear one. And also ties should not ever be required. No. I think white, white tie and black tie is like... Ridiculous. Yeah. I've only ever been to two black tie affairs and it was extremely stressful to figure out what to Mm -hmm. wear and i was like listen somebody please literally just spell it out for me and tell me what i need to wear for this like yeah it doesn't need to be floor length do i need to wear heels like all that i just vote that we never do that ever again yeah i occasionally have to do a black tie event for work i haven't done it in a couple years obviously and uh Yeah, I'm like, on the one hand, like, I suppose it would be socially acceptable if I chose to wear a tux, but also that's expensive. Yes. Um, Don't have the money for that. But yeah, I also like hardcore stress. I'm like, am I supposed to be wearing like a floor length dress? How do I dress up what I have? I don't know. Exactly. Also, I'm technically there working. So what are the rules there? I say we make a jumpsuit rule. So yes. that if you're working at a black tie affair, you can wear a jumpsuit and it's fine. I would love that. And then you could just blend into the background. I would love that. It's just static. Like yeah. static colored gray. Just oh, like, that'd be lovely. You could just chameleon. Yeah. <laughs> that just like pre- press yourself up against the wall. Just hide. I cannot be perceived. I will do my All job. All you can just like my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So I read in the trivia for this movie... Not a lot of movie trivia for this one, yeah. but it's probably because, like, this is kind of before the era of movie trivia. Yes. <laughs> and, like, God only knows how much is actually written about what went on behind the scenes. But I did read that James Whale was under consideration for being the director of this movie. Most famously, he uh, directed Frankenstein. I think that's mm-hmm. probably his most famous film. Also, famously, very out gay man Yes, in the 30s in Hollywood, which was dangerous and also kind of groundbreaking. Not the only gay man, but he was just very out. Yeah. And had a lot of relationships with actors and other directors and producers and all Mm -hmm. kinds of stuff. But he was considered to make this movie and he wrote a screenplay for it. And they were like, James Whale, this is far too gay. This is way too gay. They said that it pushed boundaries so much that they were like, yeah, we got to go in another artistic direction. They called it, quote, outrageous. Yes. And Where is this script? <laughs> I want to read it. We must know what the James Whale Dracula's Daughter script entails, number one. And number two, this movie came out so gay already. Yeah. 
what could what does james wales say yeah like how much more outrageous can you get the countess all but kisses both lily and janet Mm -hmm. and like during the course of the movie so (laughs) although i thought it was pretty funny that like right before the countess was about to like get very very close to lily the camera just like swings up really fast and shows this mask (laughs) almost like it was an accident like somebody dropped it Mm -hmm. or like they were holding on to it in the gimbal and they just like let go of it and it was just like boop (laughs) i can't remember where i read this i was doing some reading last week when we decided we were going to do this one but they actually added the beginning of the painting scene where you very clearly see and it might have been script to actual shooting or i can't remember if they went back and shot some extra stuff later but they wanted to make it very very clear that when you saw lily and you saw her shoulders that she was not nude like they were very clear to show her in her slip and have her say oh since you're painting me do you want me to push the straps off my shoulder but you can very clearly see that i am dressed because there was a lot of concern about like we don't want anybody thinking that she's naked because that's too gay (laughs) uh one woman being nude being painted by another woman with no male chaperone yeah no sir i won't have it (laughs) speaking of male chaperones sander um, yeah sander just seems hell-bent on ruining the countess's vibe the entire movie (laughs) we start out like after the countess is like yeah yes dracula is finally dead also to completely like switch trains of thought before i forget the scene where she burns count dracula's body and Mm -hmm. scatters the salt over it that speech is so freaking cool yes um it's awesome yeah one of my favorite parts of the movie but back to sander (laughs) she's like yes i'm finally free of him music sounds different or i can play happy music again i can you know i can go out during the day he's like twilight darkness (laughs) she's Mm -hmm. like shut up (laughs) i'm just trying to have a good time and he's like no never forget you're not going to ever have a good time with me (laughs) because he just really really wants to be a vampire and he never ever wants her to forget that she is doomed to being a creature of the night Mm -hmm. i thought it was kind of hilarious so one of the articles the really great articles about this movie um there was a lot written last year around pride because it was an anniversary of the film Mm -hmm. and um pride month obviously and bj colangelo who i just adore i follow her on twitter and she just writes really awesome stuff about film and wrestling and horror she wrote a piece for shutter's blog called dracula's daughter and lesbian erasure and we'll link it in the show notes. And she talks about her own experience growing up, like knowing she was a lesbian from a very early age and both knowing and understanding that like that was something that was viewed as bad in other people's eyes. Mm-hmm. And she talks about, you know, really finding a lot of parallels in this film to her own journey of her own queerness. And she talks super specifically about Sandor mm-hmm. and how... I'm actually going to quote her here. She says, quote, I had public facing manservants like Sandor, who graciously understood my compulsion to spend time with women, and much like Sandor, wished me great harm when it was realized that no amount of hiding was going to be able to change the truth about who I really am. 
Oh, wow. And I thought that was just so powerful and such an interesting insight on that character. Yeah. Because on the one hand, like, he is comical. You're just like, man, you are a buzzkill, sir. (laughs) But when you think about it in terms of the queerness of the story, how he is, like, omnipresent and is both never letting her forget who she is, but also, like, always kind of making her feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. That character takes a really interesting, takes on a very interesting dimension. Especially because he ends up being the one to kill her. Yep. Exactly. Whether or not it was accidental, he -hmm. was the one who did it. So that really takes on a much more sinister aspect when you think about that. Like, he's not just a footman, you know, to like, you know, help her. He's kind of her servant during the day to make sure that she stays protected and... Also to, like, help her get around and all that. But also at night, he never, ever is going to let her forget that she is what she is and that it is up to him. Like, he very literally could kill her at any point in time and vice versa. I mean, she could also kill him. She yeah. she has the power to do that, but she wouldn't because they both, like, have this weird, fragile relationship between, the like, this nasty symbiosis between the two of them. So the fact that he ends up being the one to strike her dead is, like all the more sinister in that aspect. It's a really interesting power dynamic. And again, it's very different than Dracula because Renfield is so loyal and so dependent on Dracula. Like even when he's kind of leading the authorities to Dracula, it's couched in this loyalty and this conflictedness. You know, Mm -hmm. Dracula is his master and he promised me all these things. Sandor is not like that at all. Sandor certainly doesn't, he's not as manic, first of all. I mean, number one in the casting, how could you ever top the mania of Dwight Fry as Renfield? Yeah. And I think it was smart to take that character in a different direction so you didn't have a clone of Renfield. But Sandor is quiet. He's menacing Mm -hmm. in a very different way. And the power dynamic isn't as clear, as you say, between he and Zaleska, you know, With Dracula and Renfield, you always know who's in charge. With Sandor and Zaleska, it kind of goes back and forth depending on what time of day it is, what they're doing, that sort of a thing. He's omnipresent and he like helps her in her dark ends. Like he's the one who goes to get Lily. He's the one who helps her with Janet. But he is also the one who could at any point in time, you know, go and fetch somebody like, hey, look, look and see what Mm -hmm. happens when I try and hurt her or watch, look, she's feeding right now, you know? So it's definitely interesting. And his omnipresence is kind of because he just like will appear out of nowhere. Yeah. Which is sort of what you expect from Dracula. Yep. Is that sort of um, sneakiness. But Zaleska, in this particular instance, being the vampire, is not like that. She knows how to make an entrance. Oh, yes. Very much so. (laughs) But uh, she doesn't ever feel the need to, you know, sneak. She's always, like, very much out in the open, as where Sandor is, like, basically fading in with the wallpaper. So that's such an interesting partnership there. Since you mentioned her death, do you know how that fits into the Hays Code? Do you know much about the Hays Code? Uh, no. Aside from that, it was a real buzzkill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Hayes Code was a giant buzzkill. The Hayes Code, of course, was the predecessor to the MPAA. It introduced censorship into cinema, um, into very early cinema, and it was very prescriptive. The MPAA is 
similarly and yet differently prescriptive now. We certainly see, well, we talked about this last time with Hellraiser a little bit about, you know, sort of what they had to cut or things that they, where they couldn't go as far as the Hellbound Heart so that they could get the R rating, so that they could get mass distribution. The Hays Code was even more prescriptive. It dealt with content in a very specific way rather Mm -hmm. than being sort of a, well, you have to get this rating, like, there were certain like tropes and things that were governed by the Hayes Code, one of which is that the evil or wicked woman had to be punished in the end. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You could not pass Hayes Code if you had an evil woman who triumphs at the end or doesn't get punished at the end. Lame. Yeah. Super lame. <laughs> I mean, I'm all about, you know, the evil women winning at the end. But yeah, that's... Uh... I mean, I'm never in favor of censorship in any way, shape, or form. Like, I think that, especially being a, a public library kid, like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I never think that censorship is the way it's to go. It's banned book week, actually, the week we're recording this. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think I saw some stuff earlier today about that on Twitter. But yeah, I'm never for censorship, and I think it's ridiculous. But what an interesting and very specific way to deal with this. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the same thing, and it was kind of roughly the same era as the Comics Code Authority that governed comic books as well. And it did the same thing in comics, where it just prohibited certain things. And when the Hayes Code was abolished, uh, which was in 1968, and replaced by the MPAA, which was governed a little differently, likewise, when the Comics Code was abolished, you just saw what people could do open up in really, really interesting ways. In comics, that's how we get the rise of things like EC Comics. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as soon as they were able to get these books out there, they were. And in horror, same thing. Like 1968, when you think about the way that horror in particular started to shift, even like if you look at Hitchcock films, like Hayes Code Hitchcock films versus post-Hayes Code Hitchcock films, the differences in what was able to be portrayed, what was able to be said, how stories were able to be told, you can start to see those differences and you can start to see how cinema began to evolve and react to it. A lot of people say that in addition to a lot of things with, you know, the grindhouses and things like that and technological changes that the abolition of the Hayes Code is the reason why 70s cinema is so sleazy Mm -hmm. (laughs) is because Mm -hmm. they were able to do it because they didn't have that barrier. There were other barriers, certainly, but they didn't have that particular barrier in place anymore. We don't have to make the evil women pay. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, man. It was anybody, though, right? Like it was anybody, any, any evil had to be dealt with, right? Any evil had to be dealt with, but there was, like, a very specific thing about women. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, you know, the Big Bad Witch is pretty scary to cis men, so mm-hmm. got to make sure that they don't uh, they don't succeed. Yeah. Especially when they're trying to steal your wives. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did think it was interesting that specifically in this movie, Count Dracula has the ability to hypnotize... Just with his thoughts and his eyes, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, As long as he's making eye contact, he can hypnotize. In this one specifically, Countess Aleska has to have a ring to be able to hypnotize people. I thought that was interesting that she didn't inherit. And I mean, depending on what vampire lore you subscribe to, like 
it's different amongst all of them, but she did not inherit that particular power. She had to use this like special enchanted ancient ring to hypnotize people. And that could have also been like a filmmaking tactic Mm -hmm. because you could just use like a mirror reflection to like cast the light on them because the scenes where Dracula hypnotizes in the 31 movie are very iconic because of the way that they light his face and specifically his eyes. And you're like, oh, okay, I get what's happening. But in this one, it's like, let's do something a little different. This is her. She's got her own stuff. Let's let that shine. So I thought that was interesting that she had to use the ring to hypnotize. I also think that anytime I watch a movie from like the 30s and 40s, I always am just very impressed at how snappy the dialogue is in movies that are that old. The way that it's written is very much... I want to say it's kind of more like a play than what Mm -hmm. you would see in a movie now. Now, I think we rely, not rely more heavily, but we we try to give equal credit to the cinematography and showing versus telling. So the dialogue can be less intense, less exposition. Mm -hmm. Um, As we're in movies like this, they were very careful to, you know, explain as much as they could because they couldn't be lugging cameras all over the place. They couldn't show all the time they would have to say. They would have to tell. But I always think that whenever I watch a movie like this, I'm like, dialogue is never going to be this snappy ever again. Well, also remember, this was very early in the period of sound cinema. Mm -hmm. So, like, they're like, oh, my gosh, our actors can speak? Let's use that to our advantage, too. Um, Sound technology and cinema was still so very new that I think some of that is a product of like, oh, we have this new thing where we can write dialogue like playwrights do. Cool. Let's let's do that. You <laughs> yeah. know? Yeah. And like everybody can hear it. We can dub over if they can't hear right, it. Right. Right. Oh, that's exciting. Did you get the impression while we were watching this movie that it's kind of like a noir film almost? Mm, that's interesting. I don't think they It ca- has characteristics of noir, certainly. I wouldn't call it noir, but mm-hmm. a precursor to noir, certainly. I don't think Countess Aleska is quite as like sultry as you see f- women depicted in yeah. noir films most of the time. They, most of the time, they're like very sultry, very mm-hmm. sexual. And I don't really get that from her. I wouldn't say like asexual in this particular instance because there are definitely some pretty like heated scenes between her and Lily and her and Janet. But I do think that it's very tasteful, I would say. Not that I think noir movies are raunchy necessarily, but less outward expressions of sexuality and more like smolder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And not so much sultry as like, I don't know, some sort of like inner... Yeah, she's not like a straight up femme fatale, certainly. Yeah. The other reason why I thought it was kind of like in a war is there in like the last act, Dr. Jeffrey is like running around with a gun and a trench coat and a trilby. And it's like, wow, this feels much like a noir in that there's a dude running around with a gun and he's like, I'm going to solve all the problems. Yeah, I think there's certainly some influence there. I think, I and I think it goes both ways. Like, I think there was some influence because noir was pretty new when this came out. Because noir, noir started in the twenties, but it definitely hit its heyday like World War Two. Like the noir we really think of is like post World War Two, like into the fifties noir, like all those great detective movies, like. Mm-hmm. My favorite noir movies come from that era. Mm -hmm. However, I can see how this would be 
in sort of the middle of the early period, influenced by some of those noir movies, which were also influenced by German expressionist movies, and how some of the influence of this movie, although it was horror, then influenced some noir moving forward, definitely. Yeah, it definitely feels like, at least that part of it, felt like a noir. If you hadn't seen the rest of the movie and you only saw that last part with Sandor shooting Countess Aleska with the arrow and then trying to shoot yeah. uh, Dr. Jeffrey with the arrow and then getting shot himself. It's almost like a crime film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it definitely has those elements for sure. One of the last things that I did want to talk about, you know, is another article that I read that came out last year for Pride. And this was on the uh, Gaily Dreadful blog, um, okay. which has the greatest logo ever, the hot pink hockey mask. <laughs> and their tagline is bursting out of your closet. Um, this was an essay written by Abigail Waldron. And in it, they talk about reclaiming Dracula's daughter as a queer icon. Okay. About awesome. how, you know, it's tricky when you're looking at early cinema and you have a character who by virtue of the period in which the film she's in is made is denying her queerness. Mm -hmm. And yet here is this example in early cinema of a queer woman, you know, queer representation in cinema in the 1930s was not, there was barely any and to have a queer woman is pretty revolutionary. And so in this essay, Abigail Waldron sort of, talks about the sort of parsing of reclaiming Zaleska, even though in the film she's grappling with and ultimately trying to deny her queerness, having a modern audience of especially queer femme people reclaiming her as an icon because she is an early representative. And I was just curious about your thoughts about that, because I think it's a little it's a little tricky. It's a little fraught when you have, on the one hand, a, a rare queer character, but the mechanics of the film are all about them denying that part of themselves. I think that that is such a common shared experience for so many queer people is the denial of self that even when you see it in a painful depiction or a painful portrayal for as early as it is, it's still important. Mm -hmm. um, even though it's in denial of this self and that is such a painful period of a queer person's life is to just say, oh, no, that's not how I feel or that's not how I can't feel that way. I mustn't feel that way. I think that it's such a common shared experience, not to say that it's OK. I think, though, that even those tender and upsetting experiences are still important to show and OK to claim because it's a bittersweet yeah, thing yeah. to see someone go through something that you went to, through as well that hurt. I think that you can liken it to heartbreak in film because we see mm -hmm. heartbreak happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, so frequently in movies. Honestly, I would challenge you to, to, name, yeah. to name a movie <laughs> that doesn't have to do with like unrequited love or heartbreak, um, whether that be like friendship or um, romantic love. Even though it's it hurts and it sucks, it's still so important especially to have waypoints in your queer journey yeah and in queer history too it's so important for us to have waypoints and say no no look all the way back to 1936 there is queer representation in movies we existed then we were in movies then mm -hmm. we had shared experiences we could see ourselves in film then is it fraught kind of yeah and if you're looking for like happy story time 
gay movies, this is not going to be no. the one. <laughs> um, like, this is not a, a gay rom-com. <laughs> this yeah. is not boy, the boy, or what is it, bros um, <laughs> with Billy Eichner. Oh, God. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is not that movie. But I will say, like, I do think it's really important to see yourself in things, even if those things might hurt. Yeah. And that's just me. Like, if you want to feel good all the time, that's fine, too. Like, just, you know, don't watch this movie, probably. Yeah. It's okay if you don't feel like you're comfortable with that. But as a queer person, I think, for me personally, it's really important to see milestones and historic representation and things like that. Definitely. What do you think? I agree. And in the article, you know, they talk about, on the one hand, you know, looking at it from a historical context and saying, like, you know, on the one hand, see how far we've come and yet how far we still have to go. And on the other hand, as you say, being able to say, even though we weren't as visible in 1936, hey, there's somebody there's a touchstone right there. We were there. Yeah. It might have been a little harder. You might have had to look a little harder or squint your eyes a little harder to find it, but we were there. Yeah. And that can, there's a, satis- a certain satisfaction in that too. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's upsetting and like, you know, ultimately the person who's trying to deny themselves ends up dying. Yeah. Which is another very real and shared queer experience. Especially as time went on, for that to be a very common shared experience of queer people is to lose people just simply for being queer. Yeah. Especially, you know, once you get into the 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah. And then all the way up through the 80s and early 90s, honestly. It's still important, even if it hurts. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, that's a really interesting point, though. It's still important to say, I was there. Somebody like me was there. Mm-hmm. Um even so long ago and and even when you see that in movies now like movies that are being reclaimed you know for one reason or another it's uh even in small ways it's still like yeah this is holy crap like this was really important this was like uh (laughs) like this is totally not in the same vein but like to wong fu oh yeah it's a movie that's like totally gotten cult status lately I would say in like the past five years, it's really kind of like meteorically risen to a level of um, fame that it has now. And I love that movie. But when I watched it as a kid, I wasn't like, oh, yeah, queer representation. Right. You know, and even the marketing around the movie at the time was not like these are trans women who are, you know, going across the United States. It was like these are transvestites. Right. Because there are so many reasons why. The marketing around that movie was not as mm-hmm. as uh, sophisticated as it should have been. But I think now, like, that movie, people are saying, like, oh, there are many things in this movie that are problematic. But, like, to see trans people in a movie that even during that time period, people didn't even know what, what language to use right. yeah. around that, like... So important. So cool to go back and see that. Even if you're like, wow, that representation is like, wow, that's reductive. Or maybe some of the language is bad. They fell short on this. Yeah. Yeah. But still, it's like, nope. Yep. I mean, you could even say that about John Waters movies. Like, (laughs) I mean, you could even argue that about Rocky Horror. Yeah, exactly. If you're being quite honest. You know, there are a lot of um, 
and that's a movie I want to do at some point, so I don't want to go too far afield on this. But, you know, there are a lot of things that are hella problematic about Rocky Horror Picture Show. And yet, like for so many of us, Rocky Horror Picture Show was an entrance into something that was so different than, you know, what we experienced in our daily lives. And yet there was some kind of affinity there Mm -hmm. that was so important for so many people was just to have a little taste of, oh, huh, huh, okay, you know. That guy's wearing fishnets and lipstick and it's doing something for me. Right, right. I don't know what that is, but I'm going to watch this movie at least 50 more times. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And like, even though that movie, like there are emotional parts of that movie, there are parts that are really problematic. You could even say that with this movie that we're talking about with Dracula's daughter. Like, yes, is there a problem that the woman that we are so closely identifying with that she's killed at the end, you know, Hayes Code, writers be damned. But to still see a little piece of yourself kind of puts a hook in you. Yeah. And, you know, it attaches that movie to you. Yep. Forever. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah. Next time, we're going to go from the 30s all the way up to the 90s. And we're going to talk about a movie that I have not seen in a really long time. And I'm excited to revisit it. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I also have not seen this movie since probably I was in high school. Nice. (laughs) So it's been a really long time. But we're so, so excited to cover Idle Hands from 1999 next time. Uh, Little baby Seth Green. Baby Seth Green, pre-Y2K. Oh, late 90s fashion yes oh my god there's gonna be so many ideas i'm gonna get from there like yep i don't dress like that yep i want that outfit i'm gonna bring that back (laughs) for both guys and gals i'm like i'm all over the board i'm like jinko jeans check (laughs) (laughs) let's get those weird like knit polos with the stripes on them do you remember that (laughs) oh my god my school picture in 1998 Eight, I think I had one of those on. <laughs> Man, that was the guys wore them, girls wore yeah, them. Yeah, mine was a V-neck. It was super cute. If I still had it and it fit me, I would totally wear it today. <laughs> it's probably good that you don't have clothes from 1998. Yeah, probably. <laughs> oh man, little baby Seth Green. Anytime I see him around the time that he was Oz on Buffy, I'm just like get immediately transported back to. The Oz and Willow years. Yeah. Anyways, I digress. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a big black hole for me. So Yeah. Yeah. Talk about problematic. Um. <laughs> Yay. And yet beloved. Idle hands next time. Woo woo. Yay. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.